Hi, I'm Moira Demos, one of the executive producers, writer-directors of Making a Murderer. Hi, I'm Laura Ricciardi, and I'm one of the creators of Making a Murderer, and you're listening to The Interview Show. With Scott Wood. With Scott Wood. With Scott Wood. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so guys, if I was going to describe this show to my grandmother, who doesn't watch a lot of television, what would you say to describe it to her to get her to want to watch it? It's a compelling underdog story that would take her from one extreme of the American criminal justice system to the other. Don't don't say that to her. <laughs> Moira, try something. <laughs> That's a very hard question. I don't know your grandmother. <laughs> Somebody's grandmother. Anybody's grandmother. You get what I'm saying. I just want to have two sentences on wh- how you describe this to somebody to get them to watch it. Mm-hmm. I think at its core, Making a Murderer is a a story about human beings in extraordinary circumstances and, you know, how, how the American criminal justice system takes a toll on everyone. show. This is Scott Wood, your host. Right now, I'm sitting across the table from the two filmmakers who made a docuseries called Making a Murderer. I would love it if I could get each of you guys to introduce yourselves. I'm Moira Demos, one of the executive producers, directors, and writers of Making a Murderer. And I'm Laura Ricciardi, executive producer, writer, director of Making a Murderer. All right. So this series began in 2005 when fresh out of film school, you guys read an article in the New York Times about the exoneration and subsequent murder conviction of Stephen Avery. So I'm imagining you guys in an apartment on a Sunday, somebody's wearing fuzzy slippers and you see this article. Could you set the scene? We were actually on a train. We were um, taking, it was the day before Thanksgiving in the States um, back in 2005 and we were taking the train up to my parents for the holidays, and so we would picked up the paper for the two-hour ride. And it was actually Laura who was reading the article and elbowing me about every five or so lines. Yeah, it w- I was captivated by the article. Um, as you said, it was about a DNA exoneree later charged with a new crime. And um, the focus of the article actually was on the backlash the Wisconsin Innocence Project was suffering as a result of having freed Stephen Avery for the 1985 wrongful conviction and the concern that he might have gotten out and now killed an innocent young woman. So when taking on any project, there's a lot to think about. This project turned out to take 10 more years of your life. So there must have been a conversation about, okay, this is the project. So I'd love you guys to walk me through a little bit about that conversation. Sure. Um, So, you know, after we read this article... Um, we were talking about it and kind of recognized Stephen as this 
incredible window into the system and this incredible opportunity for us as storytellers and, and, you know, for our viewers. Because, you know, here was a man who had been failed by the system in the mid-'80s. You know, there was no doubt about that. And now here he was stepping back into the system. And it was, you know, we could kind of look at the new case as it unfolded and ask questions about, you know, have we made improvements? Has, has DNA led to a more reliable system? Have legislative reforms led to a more reliable system? And we could kind of test that. Right. Well, we read about Stephen. We made contact with the clerk's office and found out we could go out and um, join the media camera pool that was out there. And so within about two weeks of reading the article, we were on the ground in Wisconsin filming. And it was apparent to us immediately that there was a story there. Um, from the article itself, we could tell that there was already a 20-year story that we, we could document. And as Moira said, there was this new case that was unfolding. So um, our very first day of shooting was Stephen's preliminary hearing, which is essentially the first scene of episode three, where the state goes in and tries to make an argument to the court that they have enough evidence to hold him over for trial. The courtroom was packed. Um, there were people on both sides of the aisle, and we we knew that, you know, there was definitely a story there. And I guess I would add, I mean, you were asking about, you know, what went into the decision-making process about, you know, taking the leap to start making this. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with timing, timing in our lives and timing in our careers. As you mentioned, we were just wrapping up our graduate film studies and so looking for a story, but also, you know, looking for an opportunity and very aware that nobody was, you know, going to come with a silver platter and say, you know, here's a great opportunity, that we sort of had to find it ourselves and make it ourselves. And the fact that, you know, this seemed like something that we could do. You know, Laura had been a lawyer before going to film school. I had had a background in film production and documentary editing before film school. So we kind of thought, you know, if two people can pull this off, you know, maybe we could. So you guys have said that you had a strong belief while making this project that people who want to see something like this and that strengthened your commitment because you were doing this for 10 years. So I'd love you to talk about one moment because 10 years is a long time where maybe your belief wavered a little bit. I mean, I can't think of a moment where, you know, we thought about giving up or stopping, but that is not at all to say <laughs> that there weren't some very difficult moments. I mean, this was a self-funded project for nearly eight and a half years, so, you know, that meant we were working day jobs or trading off working day jobs and going into tremendous amounts of debt, which is terrifying. So, you know, there were a lot of hard times, but at the same time, the more <laughs> the more you worked on it, the, the you know, further down the hole, so to speak, you had gone, and there was sort of no, no turning back. I guess there was some concern, too, that our initial production ended in the summer of 2007. So the longer it was taking us in post-production to really lay out the story, the more concerned I think we were becoming about, you know, could a story essentially become stale in some way or seem less interesting to people. Um, but luckily, that wasn't the case. And in fact, we went back into production in 2009, in 2010, in 2014, and 2015. So we were able to incorporate those shoots into the series as well and ultimately tell a 30-year story. 
The people that were close to Steve knew he was always happy, happy, happy. Always wanted to make other people laugh. <laughs> they didn't dress like everybody else. They didn't have education like other people. The Avery family didn't fit into the community. Stevie did do a lot of stupid things, but he always owned up to everything he did wrong. I'm doing a, a good life until all the trouble started. Penny Bernstein was everything that Stephen wasn't. So just think of the two of them side by side. There was no real investigation done by the sheriff's department. The sheriff told the DA not to screw this case up. He wanted Avery convicted of this crime. There isn't one iota of physical evidence in this case that connects Stephen Avery to it. In fact, the sheriff was told by the police, you have the wrong guy. Stephen Avery spent 18 years in prison for something he didn't do. 18 years. 18 years. DNA had come through indicating that he had not committed the crime. Law enforcement officers realized that they had screwed up big time. We were getting ready to bring a lawsuit. $36 million. Manitowoc County itself and the sheriff and the DA would be on the hook for those damages. They're not handing that kind of money over to Steve Avery. I did tell him, be careful. They are not even close to being finished with you. Do we have a body or anything yet? I don't believe so. We have Stephen Avery in custody, though. Are you kidding me? The disappearance of Teresa Halbach remains a mystery. Mr. Avery's blood is found inside of Teresa Halbach's vehicle. Convicted Stephen Avery will spend the rest of his life in prison. We found a key. That key was scrubbed and his DNA was placed on it. This is really strange. What's going on here? Hallbox last stop Monday was at Stephen Avery's home. If he did this, maybe it was good he was in prison all that time. Everything I've heard him say hasn't been the truth. It was extraordinarily disturbing. We went through this 20 years ago and we're going through it now again. In this criminal justice system, good luck. You are probably the most dangerous individual ever to set foot in this courtroom. The truth always comes out. Hi, I'm Moira Demos, one of the executive producers, writer-directors of Making a Murderer, and you're listening to The Interview Show. With Scott Wood. With Scott Wood. So... Making a Murderer, your series was so addictive. I'd love you guys to talk a little bit about how you broke 10 years of story, all that footage into 10 pieces of well-crafted narrative. Well, it was certainly a process. You know, it took time. But really, our guiding principle was always, you know, to give our viewers an experience, and very much an experience akin to our own. You know, we had been there on the ground filming and living through these crucial, this crucial sort of two-year time span um, and, you know, could not get it out of our minds and felt like it needed to be shared. So, you know, one of the things we were very determined about was, was to find a home that would allow us to present this in long form because we thought it was crucial to allow scenes to play out, to allow characters to be complex and nuanced, not one-dimensional, allow there to be conflict. So we knew that that would take time. It was interesting to us too to develop this um, this sort of motif in the story where we were presenting what was happening in public 
in the in the public, but then also juxtaposing that with what was happening privately or behind the scenes. So, um, and part of that I think grew out of the fact that we had cast a wide net, tried to get, you know, we we invited the state to participate, we invited the Hallbucks to participate, and they declined. But fortunately for us as filmmakers, Ken Kratz was holding press conferences, Mike Hallbuck was speaking publicly, so we were still able to incorporate their point of view in the story and then contrast that with, you know, the points of view of other people in the series. So you were making this for a while, and then you eventually decided to start to pitch it. This was probably the first big project you pitched to PBS and eventually Netflix. I'd love you guys to talk a little bit about that process. Yeah, I mean, we were we were pitching it and trying to find support along the way. We'd applied to many grants. We, we were fortunate enough to receive two grants, one from the New York State Council on the Arts and one from a private foundation, the Peter Reed Foundation. Um, but... You know, as we would go to film markets or speak to different networks, part of it was really just the distribution model wasn't there for what we had in mind. You know, at these markets, the only thing you could pitch was a feature. So we would try that, even though we had five-part outlines, you know, in our backpacks at the time. Um, So, you know, it was kind of a process, and there was a lot of energy put into those pitches. And then at some point, I think we realized we should just put that energy into continuing to make the series that we knew, you know, we could make and that it really should be to tell the story properly. Um, And somewhere in that time, Netflix started to do original programming. So we had our eye on them in terms of maybe this could develop. And so by the time we brought it to Netflix, we had rough cuts of, a, of several episodes and sketches of some others and an outline for the whole thing so that they could really see what it was we were asking them to be a part of. Yeah, actually at the time we first met with Netflix, they they had been doing originals on the scripted side but not on the unscripted side. So I think we were very fortunate in that um, you know, we, we met with them and then shortly thereafter they started doing originals on the unscripted side. So ours was one of the, of the first, which was an amazing opportunity for us. One of the most captivating characters was Stephen Avery's defense attorney, Dean Strang, who's an amazing character in your series, very articulate, very profound, um, a guy you're happy is defending people who are disadvantaged. Um, it's great to find a character like that for your series, but I'd love a tip for turning a so-so interview into a equally enthralling character in a docu-series? I mean, one of the main things we did was, you know, in terms of selecting participants for the series um, or, or narrowing the field, basically, we wanted people who could speak to their own firsthand experience. And we covered a multitude of matters in this story. We covered, I think, five matters if you count the wrongful conviction in 1985, the civil lawsuit, both Hallbuck matters, um, the attorney general's investigation. So um, I think in the end we had about 90 characters in the series. And But the you know one of the main things we did was we, we sat down with people and we wanted to hear about their firsthand experience. And I think when people are speaking to that, um, it's, it's very organic and can be quite compelling. So you know, luckily, when we had that footage in the edit room, for the, you know, for the most part, we had really rich footage to work with. And um, I, I was going to say Yeah, about I that. mean, it's hard to think of a, you know, a lackluster interview that we then had had to make use of. 
you know, I mean, many people we spoke to many times through the years of the series, and so part of it is tracking the development of their character. And, you know, with somebody, with a character like Dean Strang, you know, part of what makes his character work is because he's partnered with Jerry Buting, who's a very different character, and, and they work together in the series and can bring out different sides of the case, different sides of the issues. So, you know, we were very fortunate. We, you know, we talk about feeling like we had an embarrassment of riches in terms of all of the characters that we had to work with in the series. I'm Laura Ricciardi, and I'm one of the creators of Making a Murderer, and you're listening to The Interview Show with Scott Wood. What I'm really loving about this new breed of true crime documentaries like your show and the Serial Podcast is that you guys aren't afraid of an ambiguous ending. It's hard to make an ambiguous ending compelling as a more traditional ending, so I'd love you guys to talk about that. Well, thank you for making that point, because for us, this series is very much about... um, the experience we had of learning to embrace the ambiguity in, you know, in a story like this, because especially when you're dealing with the American criminal justice system, the matters are very complex, and it's not at all about certainty. It's about acknowledging what you don't know and trying to feel comfortable with that. So, um, you know, we did not set out to solve the crime. We were never there to investigate it. We were there to document the experience of the accused. And um, we came away from the series with a deeper understanding of how cases like this can play out and why it is important to be open to possibilities, different possibilities, and to acknowledge when there are unanswered questions. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we perhaps naively went into this this production. You know, we read this article. We had lots of questions. We thought, well, if we go to Wisconsin and start asking those questions, we'll get answers. I mean, isn't that how things work? <laughs> but, um, you know, inevitably questions just led to other questions, deeper questions. And in the end, 
you know, the series really is designed to, to ask these questions and to start a dialogue about them, but certainly not to provide any answers. You guys have said that while making this series that you learned that media can be a negative influence on the justice system. If you guys were suddenly, magically in a position of power in government, what would you do to curb this effect? Well, I don't remember quite saying that, but I, I, I do recall saying that the media can certainly have an impact on cases like this. And I think that that's a serious, should be a serious concern for all of us um, because any one of us could be accused of a crime at any time. And, you know, the hope would be that there would be room for justice and that it would play out um, properly, you know, in the courts and through the courts. Um, we've, we've traveled quite a bit internationally to talk about the series, and there have been individuals in lots of countries who talked to us about just how shocked they were when they saw certain scenes in the series where there were pretrial press conferences and lots of, you know, detail was, was shared with the public about the cases. And, you know, in my opinion, seriously threatening one's ability to impanel an impartial jury or a jury that doesn't know about, you know, the alleged facts of the case. So I think that, um, you know, moving forward, if we're looking at ways to potentially improve the system, we should look at the media's current role and whether, and, and look at the First Amendment concerns of the media versus, you know, the constitutional uh, rights of the accused. Yeah, I agree. It was very interesting and educational for us to travel abroad and, and hear from people in places like Ireland where a pretrial press conference just of that, those natures could not happen. You know, the case would get thrown out if somebody was talking about the facts of the case like that. And, you know, so it's just interesting to see other ways of doing things. Um, because it was very clear in this case that, you know, when you see the scene at the beginning of, I think it's episode five, and the defense team is going through the jury questionnaires, you know, not only has, has almost every person who fills out a jury questionnaire heard about this case and heard about many of the facts of the case, but they've also almost all made up their minds already, and there hasn't been a single piece of evidence presented in court. So, you know, it's important to remember, I mean, it's important to remember now as well as so many people have gotten interested in this case and are out there debating guilt and innocence and trying to solve the crime that these actually are matters for courtrooms. And, you know, it's a very regulated place for a reason. And, you know, we should respect the process. Thanks for talking with me today, guys. You must be thinking about the next project now. If you could go back in time and talk to you guys over 10 years ago, when you were starting this project, what's the one thing you would say, okay, you've got to remember to do this? Anything that could have <laughs> saved you time, effort, frustration? Like, would we have done anything differently in these 10 years? Sure. Don't you ever look back at younger you and say, well, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't have done that. Maybe that would have helped your documentary come together much faster. I mean, the, the one, you know, we certainly did not have finances to, you know, to, to um, 
to make the project. We, this it was almost entirely self-funded until we met Netflix and where they came in and you know essentially provided the infrastructure we needed and the finishing funds we needed. But so so we didn't have the money we needed to make the series, but we had time. So we tried to make the most of, of the time that we had. If we were to go back now and, and advise ourselves, you know, 10 years ago, I think I think the, the emphasis would be about trying to find funding. Um, but then again, you know, it wasn't apparent to us at that time how to do it, um, while at the same time being able to maintain creative control of the project because we really we really felt like we had a unique story and we did not want to compromise on the way in which it would be told like we were committed to a certain film language and you know hung on to that but it it meant that the process would take a very long time because we were working day jobs in order to finance the project while at the same time you know trying to keep it moving forward yeah I mean Looking back, I don't I don't see a lot of places we could have done things differently. I mean, we even joke sometimes it's it's a good thing it took us ten years, you know, because you know, in terms of the timing of when it was released and the fact that distribution models have changed, so that you know we, you know, in a way, it had to take us this long because we just couldn't have put out a ten part series back in two thousand and eight. You know, where would that have played? Who would that have reached? Um, so we were just faced with the choice of. Do we leave out most of the story and change the storytelling and do a two-hour piece, or do we stick to our guns and, and do the piece we think it needs to be? And I don't regret that choice. All right, guys, thank you very much for taking some time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.